0: I want to talk to you, just a real quick, uh, brief description of what transubstantiation is. Um, a lot of you, people, I hope, again, I'm hoping I'm repeating myself here with transubstantiation. It's one of those two important uh, words that, that we need. Um, Father Mason told me about recently, he heard uh, our, our president, Donald Trump, quoting a beautiful word, a beautiful word, uh, total equipment. It's a beautiful word, so just one word there, total equipment. And for us, we have a a beautiful word called Holy Trinity. It's a beautiful word, it it describes so many important things. And probably another important word that we have is transubstantiation. Transubstantiation, it's one of the most important words that we use as Catholics. And as, as a kid growing up in the 60s and 70s, I have... I never did remember being taught that uh, back then and uh, but it's such an important word and I want to use an analogy that helps me personally it may or may not help you when we talk about substance we're talking about transubstantiation so a a substance is going to be transferred from one thing to another that's transubstantiation but what is a substance In describing substance, you would think, okay, the substance of this thing that I have my hand on is is a uh, wood. But what we're going to do is use philosophical uh, um, terminology here. So from a philosophical point of view, the material of this what my hand's on is wood. But the substance describes what a thing is. So substantially speaking, then, what is this then? It's a podium. Now, when this material, wood, was in a in, in the woods, it was in the uh, forest there and it had green things growing on it, substantially speaking, what was it? It was a tree. That's right. Substant- so again, substance describes what a thing is. So when this material had green things growing out of it, Substantially speaking, it was a tree. Then somebody cut it down and put it into uh, long slats of wood, and then he stored it into a shed, and then it, it had a, a transubstantiation. The substance of that, this material is no longer a tree, but then it transformed to being from a tree to being wood, uh, excuse me, being lumber. Then somebody took the lumber and cut it into pieces and shaped it, and then and put it together like this and then it took another transubstantiation. It's this here, my hands on, it's no longer, you can tell, we can all agree it's no longer lumber. It's a podium. So substance describes what a thing is and then transubstantiation, what a thing is, transforms from being one thing to another. So we can all agree now that this this material is no longer a tree. Substantially speaking, it's no longer a tree. Substantially speaking, it's no longer lumber. It is a podium or a lectern that, that we use here. And we got a lot of transubstantiation going on. How about my Bible here and the pages inside there? And we won't talk about the leather because uh, we know where that came from there. So that's transubstantiation. Now, when the gifts are brought up uh, from the back there, substantially speaking, what is brought up? Substantially speaking, it is bread and and wine. That's right. And then they're brought up here to this altar. And then Bada Midas, Monsignor Midas, uh, uh, brings the Holy Spirit down. The Holy Spirit comes down in a very special way. And it creates this incredible miracle. And there's a transubstantiation. It's no longer bread and wine after the words of consecration. It is the body and blood of Jesus. Now, just so you know, we believe we believe as Catholics, it's a complete transformation that after the words of consecration, which we still had Jesus present in this in the tabernacle there, it's no longer bread. Not even, even mingled in there. There's some religious traditions that believe in consubstantiation, where the bread and wine is mingled together. With the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, just so you know, we don't believe that at all. We believe there's a total transformation; the substance is completely transformed from bread and wine, completely So and divinity, into the body and blood of Jesus. And so, at times, people will say, "Well, Father, I don't like to uh, drink the wine at, at mass because I, might, well, I get a, uh, uh, might get a might get a catch a cold or a flu." Well, and my response is, well, I don't either. We drink the precious blood when we decide to take uh, the the cup from the cup at mass. It is the precious blood, completely so in divinity. Okay, so that's a very important word that we have in our Catholic uh, dictionary. There, transubstantiation. Where again, one more time, the bread and wine is the substance of the bread and wine is completely transformed. Completely into the very body and blood of Jesus. Okay, so we got that going on. We have to certainly get that going there. Now, uh, to fully understand this, the other thing too, what I love about our faith is that our faith is the biggest dot connector there is. I called up uh, uh, Dr. John Gresham, he used to be a professor at the seminary and now he's uh, he's a prop up in the Sacred Heart Seminary in Detroit and I called him a, a month or two ago and I said hey uh, John you know the world religions better than I do is there any other religion in the world that has all these dots that are created over thousands of years and then they come neatly in a package that is Jesus Christ and he's and he thought about it for a while and he said you know what maybe mohammed would think that He is a fulfillment, but as far as being a dot connector, he would not even worry about that. That he is the uh, the final prophecy that people should listen to. But other than that, yeah, Jesus is the dot connector. He's the biggest dot connector, and you can all see them in the Bible here. And then I would contend that the, the second biggest dot connector is the Blessed Virgin Mary. And we can talk about her, too. So when we talk about finding uh, Jesus in the Old Testament, what we're talking about is something that's very uh, uh, traditional in the church. It's looking at the Bible as a typology. Um, Doctor Bram Peachy was asked recently if, um, "Where do you see the Eucharist in the Old Testament?" And his response is, "Well, where do you not see it in the Old Testament? It's all over the place." And then uh, reading his book on the Jewish roots of Mary, we can ask, okay, well, where do you see Mary in the Old Testament? And the response would be, where do you not see her in the Old Testament? And then I just recently read the book uh, uh, from uh, uh, Tim Gray. He's a young Bible scholar, too. And he talked about the Jewish roots of St. Peter. So we got all this going on here. There are so many dots connected in the Old Testament or popped up in the Old Testament And they all come together in Jesus and to study those dots and to study the way Jesus and Mary, the 12 apostles, connect those dots. That's called typology, where we see in the Old Testament types that are fulfilled in the New Testament there. So that's what I like to briefly describe for you. In order to do that efficiently, we need to, again, reaffirm what we know about sacred Scripture. So what i like to do is simply uh, go over a brief history of sacred scripture, uh, the Old Testament. they the Jewish scriptures. So we know that God created the world. He created Adam and Eve. And then after that, he, uh, he, they had uh, two brothers and one of them killed each other. And that's, a, you know, that's, where sin, that's what the result of sin happened. Uh, but then we see in Genesis how God moved on this unassuming old guy in the middle of the desert. His name was starts the letter a Abraham that's right his name was Abraham and then God uh, promised Abraham that uh, uh, that his descendants will be numerous as the sky he also promised Abraham that this this promised land and he actually showed it to him and then Abraham had uh, two children you remember what the two children were Isaac Jacob and Jacob and uh, no, no, that's right. It is Isaac. I'm almost messed up here. Isaac, yeah, that's right. It is Isaac. And then Isaac had two children, uh, two boys, and that was uh, Jacob and Esau. Thank you, thank you. Man, I'm losing it here. Esau. And then uh, uh, Jacob eventually then wins his father's blessing, and then Jacob wrestles with this angel. If you recall, throughout the night, and then the angel, he, the angel couldn't best Jacob, and Jacob couldn't best the angel. And so the angel broke the hip hip socket of of Jacob and decided to name Jacob another name, and his name becomes Israel, right? And then Israel has 12 sons and one daughters, and then those 12 sons have children. They have children that become the 12 tribes of Israel. So there we got Israel. Okay. So one of the favorite sons of Israel uh, is this guy named Joseph. And Joseph was uh, the second youngest of the twelve sons. And Joseph um, was kind of... Um, the other brothers were jealous of him, especially the older brothers. They were very jealous of Joseph. And they were gonna, one of them was going to kill him, and the other one talked him out of it, and said, let's just sell him into slavery. So he gets sold into slavery, and he ends up in Egypt. And then Joseph has two talents, and one of them is he can uh, he can interpret dreams, and the other one is that he's a very good organizer. As you remember the story, Pharaoh had this dream and it involved seven good years of Jesus. Or excuse me, Joseph interprets seven good years of, of crops and then seven famine years. And then Pharaoh puts him in charge of when the seven good years happen that you're going to organize and everything else. And so that's what Joseph does after he's sold into slavery. He does as He moves up the uh, social ladder in the Egyptian world. In the meantime the 11 tribes and uh, the 11 sons and one daughter they're uh they're in destitute and they end up uh back with uh they end up with joseph they end up migrating down to uh to egypt to feed themselves and to save themselves so and then eventually joseph forgives his brother reunites with his father israel and then that's where the 12 tribes of israel remain for the next 400 years then a a pharaoh comes up and his name is ramsay Ramses and uh, he's a very ambitious guy and he's going to um, he's going to be, build up all these building projects Plus he's very very concerned about the Israelites They are growing in mass and he's very concerned. They're gonna overtake the, uh, the Egyptians So he enslaves them hard and then he obviously then he um, Enslaving them and and then this is where a guy who uh, is very important. His name is Moses, right? Moses shows up on the scene Moses then uh, kills an Egyptian for uh, being cruel to an Israelite and then the Pharaoh chases them out and Then after that then Moses is asked by God to come back and save the people from from enslavement And then that's what Moses does he comes back boldly and he's married everything and then uh, from that then uh, we know that Pharaoh was obstinate and then there's ten plagues and you're familiar with some of the plagues, like uh, uh, water turns to blood, uh, we got hail, we got, um, we got uh, locusts, frogs, we go on and on all these 10 plagues. The one that I want to draw your attention to is that 10th plague, and that's the key for us, the 10th plague there. So Moses, or excuse me, uh, the Pharaoh's still obstinate, but Moses tells the Pharaoh, this is going to be it. This final plague is going to do you in, you're going to let us go, and certainly that's what happens. If you recall the play, on the night before the play, uh, God does this uh, thing. He, he creates this Paschal meal. Paschal is a Latin version of Passover meal. So on occasion, you'll hear uh, the prayers from the Mass about the Paschal meal. What they're really talking about in a Latin way is the Passover meal. And so God encourages the Israelites to have this meal. And he's really, really strict about... How this veal is supposed to come about to make this 10th plague happen so for example they're called to procure for itself a lamb and this is out of uh, Exodus 12 they're called to uh, procure itself a lamb one piece for each household if a family is too small for the whole family uh, they must join to the nearest household the lamb must be one year old male and without blemish that's a key without blemish you may take of it from either the sheep or the goats it shall be slaughtered during the evening twilight they shall take some of its blood and apply it on the two doorposts and the lentil of every house in which they partake of the lamb that same night they shall eat its roasted flesh With unleavened bread, and that's the key to unleavened bread and bitter herbs. It shall not be eaten raw or boiled, but roasted whole with its head and its shanks and its inner organs. And none of it must be kept beyond the next morning. Whatever is left over in the morning shall be burnt up. So that's a Passover meal. And then the other thing I want to draw your attention to also, too, then you take a bunch of hyssop and dipping it in the blood that is in the basin, sprinkle the lentil of the two doorposts with this blood. So keep in mind the hyssop branch. And then after that, you need to another prescript they say, too, is while you are how. Uh, ha- while you are preparing this, it must be again eaten in one and the same house. You may not take up any of its flesh outside the household. And then here's another key point too you shall not break any of its bones. The whole community of Israel must keep this feast. If aliens living among you wish to celebrate the Passover of the Lord, all the males. Among them must be first circumcised, and then they may join the observance that is like the natives. And then we go on and on and on. So that's the Passover meal, the Paschal meal, that happens. And then you know the story. Then the angel of death came over the Israelites, over all of Egypt, and then it 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 killed all the firstborn. That was firstborn a man, woman, a beast of life. The angel death killed everybody, firstborn, except uh, the firstborn of those who had this blood uh, over the, the lintel. And then that blood saved the lives of the firstborn that was that was stayed underneath the, the roof there. So that's basically the Jewish uh, Passover there that we see about them. And then uh, Notice, too, that it's an unblemished land, which means that uh, if it, during the process the, a bone is broken, then you have to throw the whole animal away and then try again and start the process over again. Remember the hyssop branch in the ancient world. It was very traditional to sacrifice animals. And uh, this sacrifice is done within the context of a family meal. And please remember also too the unleavened bread. That's very important. They are dressed uh, with their loins girded. And uh, and in this celebration, there are four cups of wine. It's an unblemished land, and it's roasted, as we just said. And then the Jewish continue to this day to have the Seder Supper uh, celebrated. Okay, so that's the, uh, the the context. Now, that's the dots. Now, how do they get connected then? So now we have uh, one of the dots here. Again, I'm just uh, brushing this uh uh, there could be a lot of dots here, but let's go ahead and stick with these dots here. And then how did Jesus connect these dots? Please remember that in the Old Testament we see how there's lots of covenants. And think about what a covenant is. It's more than just a contract. It's a commitment of persons. Where a person makes a covenant with another person, they're making a commitment to that person. So when God makes all these covenants, he's making a commitment. When he made a covenant to Abraham, he's making a commitment to Abraham. And I'm asking I, uh, Abraham to make a commitment to him. When he made this Passover covenant to Moses and all the Israelites, he's making his commitment to them. And then he's asking them to make his, their commitment to him through this Passover sacrifice. Please remember, it's through this sacrifice that Jewish people make their commitment to God. Now, when we celebrate the Mass, then, how does Jesus connect the dots? It's through this Passover sacrifice. And when we come to Mass, we are coming coming as a family of believers. That when we're baptized, we're adopted children of God. And we, we, are, we become part of a family of believers. So just as the Seder Supper was a family uh, supper, so, was, so it is now every time we come together and celebrate Mass. At Mass, we are celebrating the covenant, the one eternal everlasting covenant. And that means that Jesus has made his commitment to us And that means that the way we make our commitment to Jesus, just like the Jews, is through this sacrifice. That's the way God is asking us to make our commitment to God, is through this sacrifice. It's the way He did it with the Jewish people. It's the way He's asking us to do it ourselves. And how did this sacrifice happen? Well, we start with, again, as always, and we end with Jesus. And we go to the Gospels to understand this covenant and this commitment of God to us. First of all, we see that God makes his commitment to us, his his commitment to us by becoming one of us. We believe that Jesus is God Almighty and that he existed for all eternity. And when John the Baptist talks about his cousin, remember John the Baptist is six months older than his cousin Jesus. And yet John says that Jesus existed before him recognizing his divinity but at one point then Jesus took on our humanity in every way but sin so Jesus is fully divine and fully human in every way but sin and when John the Baptist uh, encounters Jesus notice what Je- John the Baptist says he sees Jesus and he says Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one whom I said, a man is coming after me who ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. This is John's uh, first chapter, uh, verses 29 and 30. So now we, we fast forward now Three days, uh, three years, and then Jesus finally makes his way to Jerusalem, and then Jerusalem. He, we know that that's where he knows that he's going to suffer the cross. In the last days of Jesus, though, before he dies, so he establishes the one and last covenant. Uh, John does this uh, first of all. He does this with the the, uh, the bread of life discourse. Uh, we know the, that John has his bread of life discourse. Where Jesus emphatically says over and over again, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you do not have life in me. And then at one point, then we know I'm not a a, a Greek expert, but we know that in the Greek we hear the we see the word trogos. That means gnawing. So Jesus says, Unless you trogos my body, gnaw on my body and drink my blood. So Jesus is stepping it up now. He's really asking us to feed on his body and blood. But how in the world does this happen? And we know how this happens. It's through the sacrifice the covenant Jesus gives us. Now in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, though, we have this Last Supper discourse that Jesus has with his apostles that he chose to do. And so I'd like to uh, offer this uh, some of the words here. The sacrament of Mass was instituted by Christ on the Last Supper. And so we read from Matthew 26, verse 26 through 30. And then he says, and you're familiar with these words. These are called the words of institution. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to his disciples, said and said, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed on behalf of many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you from now on, I shall not drink of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it with you new in the kingdom of heaven. And then after singing hymns, they went off to the Mount of Olives. So we know that Jesus celebrated this Passover on Mount Zion in the upper room. I had the pleasure of being there. And then in order to get to the Mount of Olives, he had to go down the Kindron Valley and back up to the Mount of Olives, which is about a uh, a half a mile trip. Probably not even that much. Now notice how he interrupts the liturgy there. In the Seder Supper, there are four cups that you you eat, uh, you drink. And he interrupted. He didn't drink of this. Because he even said. I will not. I should not drink of this fruit. This particular cup. Of the vine. Until I drink it new. With you in the new kingdom of my father. Okay. And then the, the bread that he uses. Is this. In the Seder supper. At the end they use this sweet matzo bread. Also. And then that's where he says. With this sweet matzo bread. This unleavened bread. This is. This is my body. And then we know the story that he goes across the Kindron Valley. And and then he goes to the Mount of Olives and he prays. He leaves the apostles in this cave that's still uh, there there to this day. And then he goes off with Peter and James and John. And then leaves them a little bit further and goes a little further to pray. And with that prayer then, he prays very diligently. Because he knows what's about to happen to him. And he prays to his father. A very touching moment between son and father. He says, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me yet, not as I will, but as you will. And then we know what, remember now, if you recall now, he did not drink of the cup at the Seder supper. So what cup is he talking about? And then you know the story then. Judas eventually comes to him with the clubs and with the... uh, The uh, the soldiers to arrest Jesus so Jesus is is arrested he goes through this this kangaroo court and then eventually uh, they finagle Pilate to arrest Jesus or to to crucify Jesus and then here's uh, what happens then when Jesus is on the cross here then after he makes it up to Calvary which we had the uh, station of the cross uh, Matthew 26 again I want to remind you He he says in Matthew 26, I tell you from now on, I shall not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you new in the kingdom of of my father. And know how the kingdom now is on the cross. So here Jesus at one point then says that I thirst. This is in Matthew's uh, uh, 27th chapter. One of them ran to get a sponge and soaked it in wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink okay so we got that so that's matthew's account but now uh, john though does something different though if we look at john's account there he specifically uses the word hyssop and this is a key here when describing uh jesus taking the wine on the cross which is the mosaic prescribed branch that Jews used during the actual Passover meal in Egypt and John goes on to talk about this again this is John's version Jesus said I thirst there was a vessel filled with wine so they put a sponge soaked it on in wine on a sprig of, of hyssop and put it up to his mouth and then he took the uh, the wine On a hyssop branch. And then he said it is finished. And then Jesus died. Now remember. how What what all the the accounts. Of the uh, the crucifixion. Jesus is doing is. They're trying to uh, reconnect. Then with the Passover supper. During this time. Of Jesus crucifixion. The Passover lambs are being. Sacrificed. For the Seder supper. That's going to happen later on that day. And also, um, remember too, that they use a hyssop branch. And then Jesus uh, used the hyssop branch for the sponge. And now, it's only then, after he takes the, the, uh, the, the wine, that he says it's finished. And then that's the kingdom of God. And then you will notice then that the kingdom of God, and, and note how the kingdom is the cross, and that, that it's why we are crucified in every Catholic sanctuary. We have this crucifixion, reminds us of that. Just recently, I just remember hearing uh, this type of, of, of uh, Lenten observance where in the old church, the bishop asked people not to, uh, to fast from the time you get up until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And we used to have that in certain parts of the church way back in the 4th and 5th century. And the reason why they asked parishers to do that, who were healthy enough to do that, was, again, that as you're fasting and you feel that pain, it helps you connect with the pain of Jesus. And then at 3 o'clock, then you're able to eat whatever you want. And because at 3 o'clock, that's when Jesus uh, experienced the kingdom. Although we know that he descended into, into, into the hell there. But that's very important. I just recently did that, uh, Ash Wednesday. And I just recently did that today, actually, where I fasted until three o'clock. And each time, as I was fasting, I was thinking, uh, as three o'clock was getting closer and closer, I was thinking, I can do this, man. I got a few more minute, hours or a few more minutes, and I can do this. And I was thinking, as Jesus was climbing that hill to Calvary, He knew the end was near, and He was. I, 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 I was just feeling that Jesus was thinking, I can do this. I can fall three times, I can get up, I can do this, I can get to Calvary, and I can finish this. And then finally three o'clock rolls around and he takes the wine and he says, it is finished. And I and I just felt so in touch with that doing that type of fasting. I highly recommend it. But that's what it's all about there. And then, if you recall then in Exodus 12, then as as a in in the latter part of chapter twelve, it, it specifically said not to uh, if you break the uh, the actually break one of the bones of the uh, lambs, then uh, then you have to redo it again. It's not a a, a, a unblemished sacrifice. And notice in John's uh, chapter here, in John's account, John nineteen verse thirty three and thirty four, uh, they were going to um, they wanted to hasten the death of the three that Jesus and two others. They wanted to. Hasten his death. So they broke the legs of one and then the burnt legs of the other. And they did that so that then they can fall, they can they couldn't have their legs to support them and they would die of the fixation, and they would fall at the weight of their weight, and then they just couldn't get a breath. But notice what John says here. But when they came to Jesus and saw that they that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers Rusted a lance into his side, and immediately blood and water flowed out. So remember again, when John specifically said he did not break his legs, if you're a devout Jew and know the Seder supper, you can't help but to think about uh, that in, you're not allowed to break the legs of, or break the bones because it would be an unblemished. It would be a blemished sacrifice and not an unblemished sacrifice. In the book of Revelation, we hear Jesus referred to as three ways. He is the uh, the lion from the tribe of Judah. He's also the bridegroom that accepts the bride in his church adorned with jewels. And the most important way that Jesus referred to in the book of Revelation is the lamb that was once slain. And when John the Baptist spots his, his cousin and calls him the Lamb of God, the Lamb for God. Remember, in the Jewish tradition, you have this whole herd of sheep, and you pick the spotless lamb, the unblemished lamb. Not an old raggedy lamb, well, let's just go ahead and use this and, and slaughter this, you know, let's just do that. No, you pick your best, because God deserves the best. And in the same way as we offer the sacrifice on, on, as Jesus offered Himself, God was offering the best. God was offering Himself, Jesus Christ. He is the unblemished lamb whose legs are not broken. He's the spotless lamb of God. And in, on that Calvary then, we are celebrating then God's commitment to us in an unbelievable, unimaginative way. God making His commitment to us. And when we celebrate the Mass, we're not repeating the sacrifice that happened to Calvary. What happened on Calvary is such an incredible sacrifice that it is a perpetual sacrifice. And a sacrifice that perpetuates itself on every Catholic altar. In the sacrifice of the Mass, we hear about God's commitment to us and as we participate in the sacrifice of Mass, we make our commitment to God. And we celebrate God's covenant. And lastly, the book of Revelation is, is uh, 22 chapters. And uh, it, it, when John was uh, whisked up to heaven to see the book, to, to see the Revelation there, the beatific vision, what he saw was the Heavenly Mass. As you know, the earthly mass is divided into two main parts, the liturgy of the Word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. When John was able to see the heavenly liturgy, he noticed also, too, that the first 11 chapters of Revelation is about the liturgy of the Word. And then the last 11 chapters of the book of Revelation is about the liturgy of the Eucharist. John saw the covenant. The, the heavenly covenant. And then he saw something very familiar. That like as he looked at that heavenly liturgy. He's like I, I've seen this before. Maybe in an imperfect way. But I've seen it in the earthly liturgy. In the covenant of the mass that we celebrate. Heaven and earth come together in a very very special way. In this covenant of the holy sacrifice of the mass we see how God connects the dots and we only saw this just a small way but we see the dots connecting jesus christ coming to us jesus christ fulfilling his father's commitment to abraham that your children be numerous as the stars of the heaven and we see catholic families growing and growing and we see the people commitment to the covenant that God has given us growing and growing and so I want to remind you that when we lead into the uh, the Holy Holy, we recognize at that point that heaven and earth come together when the Father says, and may our voices join with uh, those in heaven as we say. And so as we remember the covenant of God, we remember that we do have our part to play in this. And let's pray through God's grace that we will continue to recognize the importance of the Eucharist and that we will recognize that the Eucharist is all over the Old Testament and that we recognize that Jesus, the land that was once slain, is a fulfillment of God's love and God's covenant to each and every one of us.